0: hey guys just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language but that's just because we know how to have a good time stick around you'll be glad you did
1: you are here for me to
0: enlighten you, if
1: you ever act like this again you're barred for life it's just violent base it's kind of embarrassing if you know your lines then you can forget
0: them oh, I get it it's very clever <laughs>
1: hello peoples and welcome back to another episode of esoterica cinema the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them i am your host for the day ryan siebold and with me as always is a man who just got out of the studio recording his first album of sea shanties Jason Peters! Arr,
0: what's up, me matey Ryan? How goes it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's coming in character. I love it. How's it going, man? How's it going?
0: Oh, it's it's going well. It's going well. <laughs> oh my God, sorry about that. I was just super in character there for a minute. Um, yeah, it's actually going well. Uh, obviously, you got a little taste of my uh, sea shanty... Pirates. Uh, i call him gene actually okay so you're uh you've been in the studio how's it been going in the studio man
1: yeah i know you're coming in a little late on the sea shanty trend but uh you know i think you're doing it right you're you got a nice producer you're working with i heard you're uh you know recording some tracks with a full band but um yeah sea shanties uh, do you have any any insight for our listeners any of the, the title names of your tracks or anything or any details you can give us before the album
0: comes out I think so. I think so. Yeah. So uh, to answer your first question, it's it's going well. Um, yeah, I did actually I didn't actually have a sea shanty band of my own. This is something that uh, my agent's friend of a friend knew a guy got us in touch. I, I have never actually sang before, and I was very hesitant about that. Turns yeah. out that's exactly what they want. Because, see, what they're trying to do is these days they're trying to bring an element of realism to music. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is like, okay, you know, back in the day it was a bunch of, you know, gruff pirates on these ships. They didn't know how to sing. They They didn't take vocal training. They didn't know to, you know, work from the diaphragm and such, which, by the way, I'm still horrible at working on that. But, you know, so in in keeping with the authenticity – They wanted to actually find non-professional singers, and let me tell you, no one can sing worse than old Jason over here. So uh, (laughs) I was a prime candidate, and it's been going well. Good, good. Yeah, as far as uh, some of the uh, names, you know, it's kind of interesting... So they're they're kind of trying to do, I guess it's like from what I can tell, it's got a little bit of a 60s Motown vibe. So like one of the songs is called like shell me once, shell me twice. Okay, it's got kind of like a doo-wop vibe to it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they would kind of switch it on us and give us something with a little bit more of like a 2000s flavor. Yeah. Uh, And that one would be called like uh, keep your hands off my booty. You know? Okay. Um. And that's a real. You Ooh, know, that's, that's a that's like a, that's real a banger. banger. Yeah. That sounds yeah, like a banger. Real dance track.
1: Yeah. yeah it
0: gets everybody rowing. Gets everybody rowing really, really hard. Uh, sure. on, the, on the ship there, and uh, let's see if there's another one I can think of. Oh, 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 yeah. We're actually doing a uh, a cover of the Great Sticks song, "Come Sail Away," and oh. we've got like this big, yeah, huge, like thirty six. Person shanty, everyone's singing, Come Sail Away, Come wow, Sail Away, come yeah. Sail Away with me. It's fantastic. I, got goosebumps and I can't wait for you to hear it.
1: just thinking about that. Yeah, no right? no pun necessary. Yeah. That's just built in.
0: Yeah, there. Sometimes you got to take the low hanging fruit, right? And say it's there. Why not? <laughs> Especially on this show. For? Fuck that.
1: Especially on this show. <laughs> we, we are the
0: kings of low hanging fruit, my friend. So, <laughs> well, yeah, so I'm just rolling that same mentality right into the old recording booth, and it's going fantastic. Dude, we're glad to have arr. you, man. Yeah. Arr. <laughs> Jemma. While Jemma. you can, while you have me cuz I'm telling you this thing is going to blow up. Next season you're going to have to find a new uh, co-host buddy because I'm sorry, I'm going to making that sweet, sweet sea shanty money. And me and my, <laughs> my my 35 other amigos will be traveling the world getting what I imagine are big-breasted women who work in canteens and also give us like stick baths or something. I don't know. It's a whole culture that I'm just getting into. There's a lot to learn.
1: Yeah, sounds like it. I'll try not to get too salty about it.
0: Hey. Hey, hey, hey. I'm stealing that one. Guys are well, going to love it. I, well, hey, Manuel. I'll, Manuel, remind me to tell you when we're done. I've got a good one. That's Manuel. He's my boy.
1: Well... While we have you, we do have a movie to talk about. In the meantime, uh, I'll try not to take you for granted because uh, every moment counts, it sounds like, before your sea shanty career takes off. But uh, yeah, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what we got for them today? All right. Should I, uh, so in normal voice or, or sea shanty voice?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, if you don't mind giving a little bit of the goods away, yeah, definitely bring some sea C- yeah, C- shanty love. love. I mean, you
0: just heard it. It's 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 what I did at the top. It's just a little, little kind of, you know, thing. So uh, let's just a do little, it. Little gravelly from the back of the throat. <clears> throat> Here we go. <clears throat> Arr, they eat so fast you don't have time to scream. A massive ball of furry creatures from another world eat their way through a small Midwestern town, followed by intergalactic bounty hunters, opposed only by militant townspeople. Arr, that's all I have because it's a short description. Arr.
1: <laughs> Actually, that that's description lent itself really well to that character voice. I. <laughs> It sounds like you're your warning of things to come. Yes,
0: this is... uh Yeah, exactly. I'm the old guy on the uh, rocking chair, you know, sitting yeah. next to the welcome to Nebraska sign or wherever the hell it is. <laughs> you might want to turn back around there, Sonny. The, like, like the drunken dude from Dagon in season one or
1: whatever. That's, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> telling me of horror's most
0: foul. Um, yes, that's right.
1: Today's film is Critters from 1986. Bringing us the power of the night. Oh, man. I (laughs) really enjoyed this, Jason, but I can't wait to hear what you think about this
0: movie. Well, I suppose, Ryan, I'll let you know right after we play this brief trailer. Trailer. (laughs) Of all the planets in the galaxy, they chose ours. (laughs) They hide in small places. This phone is dead. What? They light the dark. Jay, any luck? Just a minute. There's nothing cute uh, about them uh, mm. all. <laughs> They've come a long way, and they're hungry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Critters. They bite. I actually really enjoyed this movie. I very much enjoyed it. I was was. It's you obviously would. not a uh, you know, five star you're not gonna ascribe a like masterpiece, I'm sure it's not one of your adjectives like it was on the last film, but it's a very, very fun movie. How about you, uh, high level? What'd you think? Oh no, I love this. Yeah. Because, okay, so a
1: couple things that we're going to get into. Um, My my biggest complaint, more critters. I'm sure the sequels remedy that. They're working on a budget. Uh, Halfway through the movie, I'm still seeing very few critters. And so I wish there was a little more of this stuff. But even in those um lol moments with the family and, and all the setup and everything that gets us to those points they were fun too and the music was good yeah. and all the acting was uh really fun it had a bit of a stranger things vibe i know we're kind of in that era now where everything gets compared to stranger things when they're the ones that should be getting compared to critters but yeah um uh, my first take obviously when you put this on you know Twenty seconds into the film, it's like, oh, this is not Phantom Thread. Uh, (laughs) The (laughs) contrast to last week's film to this week's from last week's film to this week's film is uh, another level. But um, yeah, Uh, like you said, this is not the PTA masterpiece that we just experienced. But man, was it a fun palate cleanser, and just in time for Halloween.
0: One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, excellent timing. So I'll tell you what, Ryan, we'll go ahead and we'll we'll, uh, jump uh, jump right in here. Just need to know where we should start.
1: At the beginning.
0: Yes, at the beginning. Feels which, so good. By the way, wonderful beginning. So, funny thing, the Blu ray menu, before even the movie starts, the Blu ray menu is already one of the most 80s things that I've ever seen in my life because it's got that theme song, which, by the way, the movie really has two theme songs. It's got the, the Power of the Night that you mentioned, and then it's got power the Power of the Night, the synthy sort of track that kicks in at the end and might play at the beginning, right? So, uh, All of that plays right in the menu. I was super stoked. And sure enough, it delivers right off the bat when we are introduced to an asteroid that is floating through space. And superimposed, we read that this is a prison asteroid. Prison asteroid. 17. Sure. A maximum security prison, complete with (laughs) chink jail sound. So perfect. So it was like. Fuck it, why not? Prison asteroids. Movie opened on a prison asteroid. Like. I, I, I kind of thought it was I, I, I kind of thought it was going to be more horror, but it definitely starts off with sci the sci fi vibe and then with the bounty hunters. Yes. There's more sci fi here than I expected, and I was totally okay with that. Yes,
1: sci fi and comedy, uh, way more yeah. than horror, and then it kind of leans into some of the horror
0: twinges later in the film. Absolutely. Now we're, we see a spaceship and the spaceship is delivering what he refers to as krite prisoners, which we can kind of figure based on the fact that it's so close to critters is probably our titular characters. And he mentions that they ate so much that they had to kill two of them just to make the food last because there's still be ten, usually <laughs> bring back eight. So, you know, a little bit of a foreshadowing going on here. Now, we go immediately inside the prison and introduced to the jail warden, who is this like crazy floating worm alien thing. I did not expect that at all. Me and all of a sudden, either. there's an explosion, and the Krites have stolen a ship, and they're in the middle of escaping at which point Mr. Crazy Worm Alien dude is like, "Hey, you know what a, you know what we need to do here? We need to hire two bounty hunters with glowing green faceless orb heads and send them on a mission to get these crates." Ryan, did you have any idea the setup to this film was as insane
1: as it is? Uh, not at all. No. So this <laughs> film, um th- we talk about this a lot, uh without going on too much of a tangent here, but this is one of those box art uh, box cover films that we yes. reference a lot where I've not seen this I had not seen this movie before. I've seen the cover of this film a million times. This film spawned more sequels than I care to count. Um critters one, two, three, <laughs> four and a bunch of subtitles. It's kind of like its own little Hellraiser thing where it's got all these spin-offs.
0: And yeah. um And they just got this uh series on Shudder as well. They turned it into like a spin-off series now. Oh too. wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I will
1: uh, also add that uh this movie in the eighties kind of blended in with a bunch of like minded movies or, or, you know, similar movies in style like chud and ghoulies uh, and stuff like that. So I sure. kind of got them, uh, you know, a lot of the, the those things, even like uh, puppet master and stuff, a lot of the styles of filmmaking in that regard kind of cross, uh, cross the streams a bit. So um, yeah. I had no idea what to expect from this film, all that to say. So, uh, but I was, pleasantly surprised and 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 I uh, you know I really love this movie for what it is
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's great I mean anytime we kick off in space like right right away you got my attention the 14 year old boy in me just you know loves that like well in the alien like you're talking about like it looked like something right out of the fifth element but like a Kirkland brand kind or like the party city
1: version of that like the the, the costume Yeah, for was, me you know. it was
0: like Flash Gordon, you know, it was a little bit of like the older campier, not quite the budget of like a fifth Right. Moment. But yeah, either way, whatever you want to do, something super campy and sci-fi-y, so that was super cool. And then, you know, we get a brief credit sequence kind of going through space. From there we touch down on an idyllic farm, and we get these nice wide shots, and we see that there's a very traditional happy-looking family. Everyone looks healthy, We're introduced to the mother, Helen, who's cooking bacon. She's played by Dee Wallace, who, if you recognize her, it's because she was the mom from E.T. I'm sure she had a couple other things there, but we all know her as the mom from E.T. We're also introduced to the beautiful high school age daughter, April, played by a girl named Nadine Vanderveld. Gooberish-looking redhead son, he's actually, like, got a thermometer in his mouth and he's trying to fake sick. Nice little character touch there. His name's Brad, played by Scott Grimes. And then lastly, we've got Dad, hard at work in the downstairs basement. His name is Jay, played by a gentleman named Billy Greenbush. All of them then proceed to join around the breakfast table and have one of those infamous 80s breakfasts where, like, everybody takes half a bite of food and then, like, runs off. I always think that's hilarious. Yeah, um, <laughs> I <laughs> love that. That was always the thing. Mom, mom spends seven minutes cooking breakfast. Everyone takes like one bite. and It's like, okay, I'll take a piece of toast with me. Bye. <laughs> 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 right. Now, it is kind of funny because it works well. What this does initially, and it's a theme that's going to keep up over the course of the movie, is it establishes the theme of family, right? They're going to have to band together many times over the course of this film, the same way that they sort of band together here around the breakfast table. And it's funny, Ryan, that you actually mentioned some of those other sort of creature features in that like mid-80s, early 80s. That was actually kickstarted very much by gremlins, so... Like, they had been trying to get Critters, the writer and director, that is, respectively, done for a little while, and it wasn't until Gremlins took off and become a hit that then the studio was looking for copycats that they could greenlight. And as a matter of fact, it was funny because – so back up real quick. There's two main gentlemen that are responsible for the creation of this film, okay? And that's going to be the screenwriter Dominic Muir, who would later go by Brian Muir – Dominic was his middle name – and then the director, Stephen Herrick. Now, both of them kind of ended up bringing the same amount to the table when all was said and done. However, the idea was actually initiated by Dominic when he was a 19-year-old kid and he was born uh, in Nebraska and he wanted to come out to Hollywood, but he knew that he needed to have something to present people. So at 19, he actually wrote this film, The First Draft, Critters. Oh, wow. And came out. And then, you know, he couldn't really sell it. And the original draft that he had was actually much darker too. So he actually wanted this to be like a hard R. And he still had the comedy, but all of the deaths were a lot more gruesome than they ended up being in the final version. And it was actually him connecting with this guy, Stephen Herrick, who all of them were working as editors for Roger Corman. And that's how they got all, that's how they all got connected. And then Roger Corman read his script, committed to it, and said he would do it. But then this other guy named Robert Shea, who ended up being the current producer, he found out that Corman was going to do it. And because of the success of Gremlins, he outbid him. And so they got into a little bidding war. And of course, because Roger Corman we know is very cheap when it comes to the amount of money he's going to dedicate, Shea was able to secure a project by getting him more money. So pretty interesting how that came together. And Robert Shea
1: uh, is Bob Shea, the originator of uh, the founder of New Line Cinema. And I yeah, was Right. This is all pre Freddy Krueger new, new Line Cinema, if I'm not mistaken, when they were making this. Yes. Um, it even had the mm-hmm. old New Line Cinema logo, which I loved—the deep red New Line Cinema <laughs> that came on screen. The the old. It's
0: uh, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, when they were like more schlocky, it has that like VHS quality to it.
1: It looked like yeah, it looked like it was on an Atari game or something. Like, it yeah. so it, it wasn't even eight bit. We're talking like one bit graphics.
0: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Now, I don't know if you saw this too about how – so basically Dominic brought this script and it was really rough and Stephen came in and he polished it off. And the two of them, after a certain point, kind of became partners in this Critters project with both of them bringing equal work and equal contributions to the table. But when it came time to actually direct the film – One of them had to do it, and both of them wanted to do it. So they can't really 100% verify. No one will say so. But the legend says that between the two of them, Dominic Muir and Stephen Herrick, they actually ended up flipping a coin to see who would direct, and then the other person would just take the written by credit. It ended up being in very much in Stephen Herrick's favor because they ended up getting co-writing credits due to union rules and he was still able to direct it. And he actually would immediately go from this to do stuff like The Mighty Ducks and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. I saw that. Great films, but you can certainly carve a career off that sweet, sweet Disney money like that. Yeah. And and likewise, Dominic Muir ended up writing Evil Bong 3 many years (laughs)
1: later. Oh, no. Oh, sorry, Dominic, buddy. I did see Stephen Herrick also went on to go make the uh, award-winning Mr. Holland's Opus, and his follow-up film to this is the legendary Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which very much fits into this uh, genre of filmmaking
0: of Critters. I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so he's, you know, just very low-key, cool dude. And it ended up being, like I said, very much in his favor. There was also an unfortunate situation that occurred where the writer, Dominic, ended up uh, getting cancer early on in his life when he first came out. And he actually beat it. And then it like relapsed later when he was in his like 40s because basically like the treatment for the first cancer caused him a second cancer in his lungs. And it's just like, dude, this guy cannot catch a break between losing the coin flip and all this stuff that happened to him. Um, but he actually, you know, for what it's worth, he did maintain a really positive outlook for the most part. He seemed like a genuinely happy guy and he seemed to be very well respected and loved by his peers. So, you know, even though he left early, it does seem like, you know, he, he, he had a decent run of it while he's here. And again, his legacy is such that people really respect him and remember him to this day. So there are definitely worse, worse ways to go out. And, uh, you know, at least he he can be remembered for this thing that so many people love.
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. He, he gave us a Gave us
0: this. And I'm glad that he did. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> Absolutely. And then now when we get back to the film, we've got the intro to the cup. Somehow they got Harv, Mr. M. Emmett Walsh, who, if you don't know him by name, you'll recognize him in a heartbeat. And that's kind of one of the things that surprised me the most, Ryan, is the level of talent that they were able to get you know, in terms of the acting, you know, we've got this secretary who's Lynn Shea, which obviously she's Bob Shea's daughter, accomplished actress in her own right. But there was obviously a connection there where they were able to secure her. And M. Walsh really wasn't in much of the movie. So I think they were able to just sort of like use his name. I'm sure they shot all his scenes in like one or two days max, probably. And then we've also got the town drunk Charlie. This is Don Keith Opper, who's the the brother of one of the producers. So we've already got the daughter of one producer and the brother of another in this film. (laughs) Everyone's kind of helping out, right? Doing what they can, doing favors. Yep, yep. And he says that he's receiving transmissions from space on his own fillings and that Martians are coming in. And he, like, opens his mouth for Harv and obviously just reeks of alcohol, right? And it's like, ugh. All right, Rummy, get the hell out of here, right. Sends him on his way after sleeping it off. and we get one of several just amazing wipes by the way. I love I love the 80s and how they just leaned into the wipes on these like genre films. It's wonderful. It makes it feel so silly and comic booky. And then we get these bounty hunters. They're watching a video on Earth history when a music video of this rocker, Johnny Steele comes on. He's played <laughs> by a guy Terrence Mann and it's his hit Power of the Night. That will extend throughout the majority of this film. And uh, Ryan, I wanted to see what you thought about this because we do get the first of actually some pretty cool practical effects. Right. And that's when the bounty hunter changes his face to reflect the rock. I have it in my notes. What did you Yeah. what did you think about the level of the effects? Did it work for you or was it a little too too low budget? Or? No, it absolutely worked.
1: This movie was what it was and it leaned into it. It knew the deal. You know, I mean, look, these studios, you're absolutely right. They wanted the next Gremlins, right? And so, but it's like, you know, we go find me the guy that can make the next Gremlins. But here's the catch. I got $500,000 and that's it. So <laughs> this is what we're working with and, um, you know, there are some things that really excelled, some things it didn't, but it all felt like it existed in the same world. Like it all just sure, resonated yeah. well with me. And it leaned into, like you said, the 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 editing style and the acting style. You know, you're able to have uh, in, a, in a world where you have face melting like this with these aliens conforming <laughs> shapes. Um, you know, it also lent itself to some of the acting styles like the town drunk that you just described, you know, and his over the yeah. top. Uh, Goofish behaviors and stuff like that. Um, so everything is just kind of tuned up or tuned down a certain way, but it all felt like it gelled really well with me. Um, I loved the face, sure. uh, of face effects you're talking about. These aliens are bounty hunters going to hunt the escapes convicts, the Cretes, uh, who have landed on Earth, and uh, they have to fit in. So they're trying to study and, and figure out how to fit in, and they've decided, one of them has decided he's going to go fit in as this rock star uh, that sings yeah. his power ballad, Power of the Night. <laughs> and that was, uh, I believe, performed by the actor, right? Terrence Mann uh, playing
0: Johnny Steele, is that correct? It absolutely was. I'll even take it one step further. It was actually written by Terrence Mann as well. Fantastic.
1: Yeah, I think he was a Broadway guy. They found him on Cats or something right on Broadway and yep. uh, brought him in. And, and uh, he's like, I got I got you, fam. And he just took over
0: the role of everything. And I loved it. He did a great job. Dude. It was funny because he actually had to lobby for it. So, you know, they never really considered. I also feel like he left money on the table. He was probably just too young and naive, but he really, really wanted to show them that like he could write a song. And so he's like, "Hey, can I can I can I take a stab at it?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure. You want to save us some money? No problem." And then he just went in and like, you know, took about 20 30 minutes coming up with this little keyboard part, and then they had it and they were like, "Cool." And they recorded it and they got some uh, free music out of it. And he got to show his act uh songwriting chops. So I guess yeah. everyone wins, but I feel like Terrence Mann left money on the table. Well, Let's I can honest.
1: tell you I won personally because I love that uh, the whole thing. He had like 1980s Richard Marks hair, which if Listeners, if you have not seen Richard Marks in the 80s, please Google that right away. That's a fantastic (laughs) visual. His hair is bigger than he is. I think he stands all of about 5'4". His hair is probably (laughs) 5'3 on its own. So, um, yeah, it's... it's something. The 80s are uh, quite the decade. But uh, anyway, Jason, carry on.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny because so the way that the scene unfolds is the face sort of melts away and then it brings itself back. And that was actually done that way because of a limitation in technology at the time. So really the director just wanted a simple morph. Just wanted it to go from nothing straight into the person's face, even if it looked a little cheesy. We you know, cable television shows do that for pennies on the dollar these days, right? But at the time, You know, computers weren't as advanced as they were, and nobody just had like a fail-safe way of doing that effectively. So they kind of had to break it down into two stages, one where it melts away and then another where it comes back.
1: For the Light and Magic fans in the audience, we know that uh, ILM created the morphing effect for Willow. And so that uh, happened just a few years after this. So we are on the cusp of morphing being able to be done digitally. But uh, yeah, they had to do this practically. So you're absolutely right that they're just a few years away from being able to do this.
0: Uh, that's crazy. I was actually I didn't look it up and I was trying to think. And the best I could do was thinking that it, it was probably Terminator 2. But it sounds like it was earlier than that, obviously.
1: Yeah. Willow created the uh, cool. the morphing effect where they could turn one thing into another seamlessly and the computer would fill in the gaps. So you film one thing and then you film another thing. And then it's like, OK, I'll turn this thing into that thing. And so, yeah, that was awesome. all done for cool. Ron Howard. I not know that.
0: So the other thing I want to talk to you about is the music in this film, real quick, because I was very impressed by the music. I was like, you know, I whoever this guy is that's doing this, I feel like he's giving it his all. And, you know, Absolutely. sure enough, go ahead and look it up. And it's this guy, David Newman, part of a very esteemed family of Newmans that you might be familiar with, including Randy and Thomas and a whole host of others. It actually turns out that collectively... The Newman family is the most Academy Award nominated family in history. It's incredible. All of them. Yeah. Wow. And so uh, this ended up being one of the, I believe it's the youngest of the brothers, David. Uh, If not, he was certainly the least successful at the time because he actually got his start doing a lot of B movies, which led into Critters. But from there, he really took off. So he was able, he ended up doing a lot of the scores for the director, Stephen Herrick including the Bill and Ted movies that you mentioned and Mighty Ducks. He also scored the Sandlot and Tommy Boy. Oh, so sweet. like this guy like scored like our childhood, bro. Like, absolutely. <laughs> he scored a lot of the films that we grew up on, which is pretty interesting to look at that. and it, and it also and the thing about getting someone him or someone like him, where that's their style, is it really does help enforce that family vibe that they're really trying to get across, right? Keep things PG-13, keep it upbeat, make it be about the bonding together. That way it's, you know, and and I'm sure that it goes a long way towards helping with the MPAA as well.
1: Thomas Newman is uh, the other brother, right? Is that correct? Yes, yeah, that sounds correct. Uh Yeah, yeah, he did things like everything from Road to Perdition to 1917 and a bunch of Disney stuff too, like WALL-E and Finding Nemo and all that, so.
0: Yeah, these guys are all super studs. Yeah. So um oh yeah, and oh also the so this guy, the David, also just personally, uh his first animated film. I don't know if you grew up on this one, Ryan, a little movie called The Brave Little Toaster? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh man, dude! I love that film. So that was that's like a very very nostal- nostalgic. David film did for that, me, right? And uh, yeah, yeah. The guy who scored critters scored Brave the Little Toaster. Awesome, awesome. That's so, like perfect. I said, this guy scored our childhood pretty much. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I mean, collectively
0: <laughs> between all the Newmans, definitely.
1: I you might absolutely. call me Newman's Own. Absolutely.
0: Uh, hey. That joke died on the vine, Ryan. <laughs> hey! Uh, why does anyone? Oh, they can be winners. Carry on. <laughs> so, anyways, we've got Brad and Charlie. They're playing fireworks, and then, being rambunctious little scamps as young young kids and drunks do, they end up slingshotting the sister. Brad gets blamed doesn't uh, doesn't deflect to Charlie. Ends up getting sent to his room, where we meet Chewy the cat. Hey, Chewy, who they will go back for more than once. And this is also where we're introduced to April's boyfriend, Steve. Uh can't be more than 20-year-old Billy Zane. Billy which was Zane is crazy to see. Yep, with a rat tail mullet. <laughs> <laughs> which by the way, so this franchise, I don't know if you saw that. I don't know how this franchise gets the acting talent because I forget yes! if there's anybody in Critters 2, Critters 3 stars Leo DiCaprio and the fourth stars Angela Bassett. And it's yep. like, what the hell is going on? This franchise has launched so many <laughs> careers, it's crazy. <laughs> Yeah, that was super nuts to see. And, you know, the other thing is, I mean, appropriately, because it's a very young and handsome Billy Zane, right? April is thirsty. Thirsty for some Billy. So despite his protestations, they're going to leave. She's going to drag him away from the dinner table right in front of Dad, take him to the barn backyard. And, you know, he's a little nervous, but uh, why not, right? It's an attractive girl, and we got this whole place to ourselves. Right about then, a saucer flies overhead, of which the drunk, the dad, and the son all witness and this is of course the Kreitz spaceship it crashes we've got the dad and son investigating that and they soon find a mangled deer so don't end up finding the the crits critters creets, Kreitz whatever you want to call them but we do see the younger policeman who's on duty I forget his name exactly but he goes to investigate the crash and this is the first death of the film that we get but it's an off-screen death And basically, he goes to investigate under the car, and they end up making their little noises, grab him, drag him under, and eat him, we assume. Now, this is really where the mayhem kicks off. It's, like I said, the first death. It's still off screen, but we're going to start to get introduced to the critters. So, the next scene, by the way, the next scene, there is a wonderful hallmark of every low-budget 80s horror film, and that is especially ones that feature small creatures, right? And this is the -the low-to-the-ground POV shot of the creature running around. And Ryan, (laughs) let me tell you, man, I can see that shot a thousand times and it'll still work for me every goddamn time. I love it so much, whether it's Puppet Master, Child's Play... Uh, the Stephen King one, Cat's Eye or whatever, with what the Troll Does it. it. It was just this like very strong hallmark, but I'll be damned if it doesn't work every single time. Dude,
1: I feel like we even got it in Dead Alive from the little baby's point of view as it was like walking around. I, oh, I yeah, swear to totally. God there was uh, some of that in there <laughs> as well.
0: with, with the, When it's playing around the playground or something, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, totally. I do remember that. Absolutely. And uh, we've also got the you know sort of... Hallmark of the cat running away from the little creatures that we don't see yet. And then we're introduced to them through their glowing red eyes, which were actually very cool. We'll very actually cool. touch on that a little bit later, too. Now, the bounty hunters land. One of them still refuses to change. So we've got the one looking like a handsome rocker and the other who just looks like, like I said, like a, like a green glow lamp or some shit. I don't know. It was a very weird thing, but it worked. He kept, he kept and, its original face. Yeah. He hadn't changed faces yeah. yet. Yeah. Yeah, so, and then back at the farm, we've got the power going out for the family. Dad checks it out, phone's dead, so he goes to the basement to investigate. This is where we get our first introduction to the critters. He notices that the wires are chewed, notices a little furball off with all the tools and everything, and then he goes to check it out, and it attacks him. Jumps out, bites him on the shoulder, and then we also see that in addition to having some gnarly teeth, which, let's be honest, we saw from the box art. But I didn't realize, Ryan, that they had some, like, you know, hedgehog shooting their quill ability that they use on everyone that seems to sort of, like, knock them out or something like that. And so they, like, like a little hedgehog, it, like, blasts up and they shoot their little quill. Yeah, they're like and, mutant uh, porcupines or something. That.
1: Yeah, with, yeah. like, multiple rows of, like <laughs> sharks and, and porcupines uh, mixed together. So... Something worth mentioning, I'm going to pause you right here um because yeah, you know we're, we're we're definitely chunking through this thing and that's actually precisely what I want to talk about is that you know we're what 20 30 minutes into the show here and we're about 30 40 minutes into the film and this film is only an hour and 26 minutes so it sure. takes till about halfway through uh ish you know give or take a few that uh that you actually are introduced to the critters, you see any violence happening and you start to get yeah. The subject matter that, let's be honest, what you paid to see. So uh, I'll ask you, Jason, real quick. um, Let's take just a brief moment. Is that something that bothered you or do you feel like it uh, abbreviated any of the pacing? Were you kind of like, look, did you ever check the time and like, where are these
0: critters at? Because I did. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, no, I didn't. I think so. Like the the sci-fi element kind of got me through the first part. And then, you know, there's a lot of little, like, 80s hallmarks and such, and, you know, it's doing the family thing. And to be honest, like, I kind of – I always really appreciate the sort of, like, you know, family drama element of some of those 80s horror films. Like, I love Poltergeist. It's one of my all-time favorite films. I think a show like The Simpsons does that very well where it sort of, like, matches the cynicism with the heart. And I think that's one cool thing about this film is that it does sort of have that – heart at the center of everything with regards to the family. And so I think that it's playing to that very well. Um, I think it gives you just enough of, you know, first of all, we've got, if you think about it, we've got a lot of characters and I feel like that's part of why it's able to push through those early scenes as well is because we've got four members of the family. We've got the drunk. The drunk has a relationship with the family. We've got the cop, you know, Harv, we've got the secretary, uh, we are introduced then to the boyfriend, so it keeps things chugging along, I it think, does. through those early stages by sort of introducing new people for you to get to to know, and then by the time it's done that, before, it really, before you really have a chance to realize that they may, might be superficial characters or anything or realize what's going on, then the critters start to come, and so I feel like it does a really good job of balancing that and also... The critter effects to me were great. I mean, even today in 2022, I think they're awesome. So I'm sure that in 1986, they were pretty damn fantastic. And so I understand low budget filmmaking. I understand that, you know, if we're going to spend, because they actually spent $10,000 on each of these little puppets, the fully articulated ones and everything. So, you know, I understand that they have to kind of stretch things out a little bit up front, you know, to backload things with regards to the action and the creature effects. You see the same thing with television, right? The infamous bottle episodes where, you know, it's just one episode of everyone talking because in the next one, they're all going to go to Paris together, right? And that costs a lot of money because we're doing it on location. Game of Thrones was notorious
1: for that. They would always have like a a, a throwaway episode like towards the beginning of the season and one towards the end of the season because it's like, dude, we can't have dragons in every fucking episode. These things cost millions of dollars.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So, and- there's a lot of, like, you know, grindhouse-y type of films and low-budget filmmaking that, to be honest, I'm kind of not here for. I, I really like a lot of the low-budget sensibilities, but sure. some of these movies, they're, they're so no-budget that, like, nothing happens in them, right? Right. So you're sitting there watching it for 20, 30 minutes, and people are just kind of talking about stuff, whatever, and you don't really feel like it's building towards anything. I thought that unlike those films, this film did a good job because I felt like it, it was did. building. You're going I felt places. Like I was, you're seeing things. Yeah, you're on a-
1: spaceship. You're shooting TVs. The you know the the alien uh, mercenaries are coming down and they're interacting with things and changing shapes and uh, yeah. I'll also add to everything you're saying and say that the uh, cinematography was sneaky decent on this one. I did not expect yeah. good cinematography. Uh, that <laughs> You uh,
0: never do on a low budget horror right. film,
1: right? Yeah. It was all like really nice warm tones and the farm and, uh, you know, low low, uh, low angle shots through the wheat and all this stuff, you know, with the farmland and the background. It just, you know, Dolly shots and um, mm-hmm. the... A lot of camera uh, movement. A lot of colored gels. That was one thing I noticed. I thought you'd really appreciate the blue tones in the basement and all of the uh, hyper realism for the lighting. This guy, Tim Sirstat, I guess you say his name, uh, who shot this, went on to go shoot things like Little Miss Sunshine and The Wedding Singer and a bunch of other stuff. So, um, yeah, he had a nice long career after this as well. But uh, I agree with everything you're saying. I I said at the top of the show that though it took a while to get me to some critters, uh, I did love everything they were showing me in the meantime, but at the same, yeah. like I was kind of torn on this whole thing because I also was, I'm here for the critters. So I kind <laughs> of, so then that makes me unwind and go back to think about gremlins, which of course is the granddaddy okay. of them all when it comes to something like this. And now again, yeah. g- gremlins probably had, you know, uh, at least 10 times the budget, but, um, uh, I think the budget on this was $3 million. So if you told me they spent 30 million okay. on gremlins, I wouldn't bat an eye at that. Um, but I feel I like just that. gremlins just felt like a little more fleshed out. Like it just felt like yes. a little more seamless. This was a tale of two halves for me. So you had like the yeah. family half up front and the critters stuff on the back. Um, it was sure. sci-fi and horror. And, um, I just felt like it, uh, or even dead alive by Peter Jackson. I felt like that had like a good balance. It opens right up with the Sumatran rat monkey or whatever the hell it was. And then you kind of have that as like a backstory going along in the background. You kind of follow that along so that when it does come and the shit hits the fan on the back half, which is where he spent all his money or the back, even 10%. Um, of the film, uh, there was enough breadcrumbs there that kind of got you there. I think I just would have liked to yeah. have seen a little more breadcrumbing uh, going on in regards to the you critters. See that? Like, show me more of the red eye stuff. Like that was cool. Like, yeah. give me a little foreshadowing, you know, to what's for what's to come. So I have this sense of dread instead of just everybody. I feel like everybody was just talking about the critters. Like, yeah, the crits and the creets or whatever. It's like, <laughs> w- what are these creets that you're talking about? I think that they should have, uh, maybe even on the asteroid, like shown them right up front, like their little red eyes, uh, maybe behind a jail cell or on the spaceship or something. So I'm like, okay, now we've established these guys are in the movie. We can move past that. And we'll get back to that later. Like that's a uh, little, you know, little nugget, little plant and payoff, if you will. But um, I feel like they just assumed that I knew what the critters were. And so that when they showed up, um, I I was going to be elated about it. And I just wish there would have been a little more of that. That would have been my only complaint about it. But other than that, the family stuff was great. Not complaining about that at all.
0: Yeah, no, I can totally appreciate that. Well, and so since we're on the matter of the critters, let's actually go ahead and dive in real quick to the critters themselves. Yeah. Now, you, you, I, you I'm sure you saw that the special effects of the critters were done by the infamous Chiodo brothers. Absolutely. I was surprised yes, to find f- that out. I had no idea. I did not know that either. And so for everybody who is listening that doesn't know, they would be most famous for doing killer clowns from outer space. Which they wrote, produced, directed, at and did time, all the yes. special effects for. Yeah, at the time, exactly. Uh, they were they were special effects guys from back in the day. Also, funny thing, Ryan. Actually, when I was doing my research, I looked it up. The Chiodo brothers are still working very actively. They're doing a lot of stop motion animation these days, and their offices are literally less than ten miles away from my house in the San Fernando Valley, like in the city of San Fernando. Oh so, wow! There's some there's some Valley guys there themselves. Dude, go poke in and always- say hi. I was thinking about it. Get us some fucking bonus uh... content, you bastard. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about it, man. Go down there. Uh, Hey, you guys need some free labor? Uh, Teach me how to make some uh, cool killer clown shit? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Go down. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So uh, the special effects were done by the Chiodo brothers, who at the time, I'm sure, commanded far less than what they would be asking for today, I can imagine. As I mentioned earlier, the full articulation puppets which were the ones that can move and can do all the snarling and you can move their hands and, t- and legs to a limited degree. Those cost about 10000 each to make. So they really That's only incredible. were able to make a few of those, which, you know, I'm sure inflation probably double that, right? Because it's 1986. Yeah. And it was really interesting to see how they were puppeteered because you had a few different puppeteers. And what they would try to do is they would sort of set up these – little tracks if you will so for example in the barn what they would do is they would have the area that the critter was going to be on they would slice a line through the middle of the wood and then they would sort of have a little bar going from the bottom of the critter to the mechanism underneath. And then they would have the puppeteers like literally moving them physically underneath and then would cover all the top with hay so that you couldn't really see. And then they would obviously position the camera a unique way. So really old school puppeteer effects, like I'm sure they were doing with, you know, Muppets and stuff like that back in the sure. day. I mean, you were you're a big puppet fan. Like I'm sure. You're very familiar with a lot of uh, you know, sort of puppeteering and what goes into all that. I've actually worked on some
1: really cool puppet features and uh got to see it firsthand. Yeah. Um nice. Yeah, from ex-muppeteers that have gone on to go do other side projects and stuff, but worked with in you know in Jim Henson studios and um and I've run sound on all of that. And that's a whole thing on how to run sound for puppeteers because they're looking down all the time at monitors to see. Where they are in relation to the other characters on screen, yeah, it's a whole thing that you wouldn't think about. Uh, but then when you actually get on set and you see how it's
0: done, um, you know, it's pretty pretty impressive and very very interesting. Absolutely. And those guys wreck their bodies, man. Like they're always yeah. being asked to contort themselves into these tiny spaces and move while they're crouched with their arms behind their back, like yeah, you know, cramped up in such a way. Like it's crazy. and they're doing the voices at the same time. Yeah. So-
1: right. So, you know, obviously some of it gets redone in ADR, but a lot of it is record there, recorded there on set because they're interacting with the talent. Uh, so, you know, they're asked to, asked to be in character uh, and do these silly voices while their neck is cranked down looking at a monitor. Um, you know, even if you just touch your chin to your chest now, it's going to change the voice inflection in so much as it's cutting off your air supply to your voice and all of that. So uh, yeah. And then you mic them on their forehead and all of that, and very much a theater or stage way. Um, it's, it's all a very interesting process, but this is like you said, more of a Phil Tippett style or uh, you know, with the wires and all of that, like what you would uh, think of, uh, you know, creature from star Wars or, or even, yeah. uh, you know, where you're creating the, you know, you have someone uh, doing the facial features, somebody doing the actual movement of the puppet, maybe someone uh, moving the hands, and all of that. Uh, so, yeah, it's, I, I would yep. imagine it would probably be a two or three person process per critter. And you've got multiple of them. On yeah, they screen. had two.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK. And then they would also have like the non articulated puppets. And those would be sort of like just traditional puppets where someone would have their hand up there. And kind of move them around and open their mouths and such. So those would be like the background. Probably ones. for the
1: close-ups of their faces and stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or something like the ones that, you know, the one that's behind on the stairs in the background while the other one's getting flamed up in the front, right? Something Makes like that. Makes total sense. Yep. Yeah. Now, one of the most interesting aspects of the decisions that the Kyoto brothers made making these critters, right? Because they had sketches and they had to bring them to life. And at first, you know, the, the legs were kind of like hands and they were much larger. So it we went through a few different iterations, but one of the things that they were very big on is they didn't want the critters to feel, to look like they felt soft and fuzzy, right? Okay. They didn't want them to be like gerbils or something like yeah, that. They got to be menacing. They wanted them. Yeah, exactly. So they wanted them to have like more gamey, Fur, for lack of a better word, right? Something like a raccoon, something thick, right? Uh, So they ended up actually buying a bunch of moose pelts. So they worked out a deal for however many moose pelts and they bought them all at once in bulk, right? So that they could get a great deal. And that's what they worked with. Well, it turns out that while it looked great on film and it did give that very coarse look – Because it was so coarse and so thick, it was incredibly hard for them to work with. So, everything from cutting the pelts and designing them to be able to mold around this little critter, right? Because you got to think it's a fabric like anything else. So, you know, if you just take a a roll of polyester or cotton or whatever base material, you know, that wraps around uh, a rounded object, no problem. Now you have to do the same thing with this super thick moose hair that wants to fight you and wants to be thick and rigid. So in terms of the application, it was very difficult. And then on top of that, it unfortunately made the puppeteer's job that much harder because, again, the fur was so thick that it was fighting what they wanted to do. So they would want to, like, for example, either open or close their mouth, and that would go against, like, the natural – positioning of the fur and the fur was so thick that it would like kind of want to snap their hand back so it was like taking even more of their strength as we talked about you know even doing that for 10 minutes your hand is gonna just be destroyed so sure it really was a much a much larger strain on the puppeteers themselves and then it just behaved in weird ways you know so like it would look good with the mouth closed but then they'd open it up and the hair would kind of like flare out to the side in some weird way. And so they'd have to constantly be snipping it and cutting it to make it do and look exactly the way they wanted. So the end result was fascinating and and looked really good, but they were all like, dude, it's such a pain in the ass. Like it would not have been worth it. And I believe for, (laughs) for, yeah, for the future Critter movies, they did not use moose pelts. I don't know what they used, but it wasn't moose. Figured out.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, (laughs) Kido Brothers are legendary. I I wonder, did they continue on with the? critters franchise i don't I, I did not look that up i forgot to look that up
0: yeah so i think uh so they remained on as like special effects consultants okay that makes sense um, so yeah so because i know their careers took off shortly after this correct yeah yeah so i th- honestly i'm sure their company handled it and they themselves specifically did not that's what i would guess right we got people for that now <laughs> yeah, <right.
1: laughs> for the listeners that aren't familiar, the Kyoto Brothers went on to go do such uh, legendary effects as Large Marge from Pee Wee's Big Adventure, uh, to the, all the puppeteering and stuff for uh, puppeteering design for Team America World Police, and even the North Pole scene for the movie Elf for Jon Favreau. So, yeah, these guys have definitely uh, made their
0: mark in Hollywood for for the kind of stuff that they do. Absolutely. And the one last interesting thing I'd like to mention about the way that they approach the creators is that there's a specific way that their eyes look and that obviously like everything else has a specific reason behind it. So they always kind of felt like just throwing some LEDs behind a piece of plastic. Like you could kind of tell that's what was going on, right? It didn't really look hundred percent real and they were looking for it to be a little bit more dramatic in the way that it appeared on film. And so they had this idea that ended up working really well. And what they did is they built the eyes And then when they were done making the eyes, there was really uh, no lights behind them. And what they did is they blasted the front with this spray that's a reflecting spray that, as a matter of fact, is the same spray that they sell and advertise for you to spray on your license plate so that red light cameras can't take a picture of your car. Have you ever seen that product? Yes. Carry on. And so what it does is it just reflects all the light back so that it basically blows out the picture so that it can't be read what your actual license plate is because it's got this highly reflective coating on it. And so what they did is that they applied that coating to the eyes of the critters and then they took like a little laser light pen and they put a splitter on it so that it would split into two and then blasted that at the eyes. And so what you're seeing is this highly reflective coating reflecting the red laser light back at the camera. And that's why that's it looks like awesome. That's Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I did a a
1: similar thing uh, when I was a kid. My my very first vehicle was a lowrider mini truck. And I had given it a, it was a five-speed manual transmission. And I gave in the uh, stick shift a uh, Skull. Shift head, gear head, and for lack of a better term, as, as I, you do,
0: it's either a, it's either a skull or an eight ball. Yes,
1: right. Yes, correct. I went with the skull. <laughs> when, when given such two decisions, I chose you know the skull. So, uh, but I ran cables up the uh, shifter boot uh, into the skull itself and uh, uh, into the eyes. I drilled out little holes and I put red diodes in the eyes, and I used that reflective substance you're talking about uh on the inside of the eye sockets and in a very similar way so that it made the eyes nice. glow instead of just having two diodes there guys look at I, that i'm an i was an idiot kid i apologize for this story <laughs> i just felt <laughs> but like you're i would also share very smart you also yes. were
0: apparently a special effects whiz, and needed didn't even know I was a special,
1: it. I was a visual effects, uh, special effects guy, even at the young age of sixteen years old. Uh, <laughs> driving around my lowrider,
0: listening to Biggie and Tupac, absolutely and Outkast. Fantastic. Well, hey, I'll tell you what. Before we continue, we're going to take a quick break to hear from this week's sponsor. Please enjoy this message. We'll be right back. Dude, is the camera on? I can't see the red light. Yeah, we're live. Bullshit, man, there's no... Oh, oh, there it is. Still streaming, Drex. Shut up, Steve. Some brother-in-law you are. What's up, YouTube? It's your boy Drexler out here with another episode of Crunters, the best creature hunting show on YouTube. Be sure to like and subscribe, and of course... (sighs) We're still doing Crunters? Yes, we're still doing Crunters, Steve. It's called a mashup. Creatures meets hunters. Crunters! I'm telling you, it sounds horrible. You sound horrible, Steve. Like I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted, be sure to smash that subscribe button if you haven't yet. And to the 37 beautiful people that have, sexy Drexin loves you for it. you got to be kidding me. We're here outside of Old Man Brown's farm, where I've been hearing rumors about some furry creatures that like to munch up on humans for supper. Come on, y'all. Let's see what we can find. Want to take this moment to shout out my sponsor, Sousa's Shotguns, who provided me with this little beauty we see right here today. And if you like hearing me cock this fine-ass weapon, y'all, be sure to like and subscribe for more banging-ass content. But boom Chunk Nuggets! Whoa! Come on, Drex, you're going to shoot someone. We're trespassing. You're going to get us caught, idiot. And don't forget, trouble with the landlord. Don't sue. Call Susie. Sousa's Shotguns. Use code SEXYDREXY for an extra 10% off your order today. Oh, shit. Hey, Steve. Hey, Steve, you hearing this, man? Yeah,
1: it sounds like two people making out.
0: Oh, shit. We're gonna get a free porno out of this. Woohoo.
1: <laughs> this feels wrong.
0: By the way, if anyone watching likes impromptu pornography, make sure to smash that subscribe button. Okay, now, y'all, listen, listen. I'm looking at these two young people. They look like they're maybe older teenagers. Girls super hot. Hey, I'm not gonna lie, y'all, so is the guy, kinda. Matter of fact, I think. Holy shit, is that... Is that Billy Zane? There's no way that's Billy Zane. That is goddamn Billy Zane. Hey, Billy! Billy Zane! We love you, buddy! And we all agree, the Phantom was tragically underappreciated. Shh, Keep it quiet, you're going to
1: blow our- Whoa,
0: whoa, what the hell is that? It's a giant furry monster! The legends were true! Drax, 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 what's he doing? He's trying to eat Billy Zane! Ah, my Billy Zane face! Billy Zane, no! Drax, now where are you going? I gotta save Billy! Listen up, you giant furry asshole! Billy Zane is a goddamn- National treasure! And I won't let you take him from us!
1: Please, forget the girl. Save me instead.
0: <laughs> Billy, I-, I just had an idea! What's that? There's enough room on that horse for one of us. What are you saying? Don't fight me on this, Billy Zane! You just take that horse and you ride it to freedom!
1: Oh, really? Awesome. No, I legitimately couldn't hear you just now. This is wonderful news. Thanks for the sacrifice, pal. Billy Zane out. Yeah!
0: <laughs> Damn. Bill Zane just left me to die.
1: Well, that's Hollywood for you.
0: Either way, YouTube, just be sure to make sweet, sweet love to that subscribe button. For Grunters, this is your boy Drexler saying. Ah!
1: Ah! I still think Grunters is a dumb name.
0: And that was this week's message from this week's sponsor. Very handsomely rewarded us, so please do go out and enjoy their fine offerings, whatever they may have just been. Now, from here, we've got the bounty hunters, and they went and they find the dead cop. And this is actually, I thought this was a very funny sort of little touch that they probably didn't play up as well as they could. Like, they didn't really give it comedic beats, but I thought it was very funny to have the second shape-shifting alien, like, fashion himself and copy the dead cop and then end up being dead himself or looking dead because he copied a dead cop. And I feel like they definitely left some laughs on the table by not exploring that a little bit more. Did you feel that way at all? Or was that just me? I kind of felt that way
1: throughout the film. I think that it wanted to be. So if you're going to lean into the zaniness again, referencing dead alive, great example or gremlins for that matter, or even better. Yeah. Gremlins too. (laughs) <laughs> um, then you kind of need to like go that way and have a little more of the laughs, uh, involved. I felt like the tone was zany that way and, and it was done very well. I, I'm not judging the tone at all. The way that, uh, people responded to these things or like kind of the schlockiness, but I think it was missing some of the jokes or some of the punchlines that, I agree. uh, I do could agree. have really, helped bolster the whole thing and filled it out more and now that i'm thinking about it because it does have the family stuff it does have kind of the schlocky stuff um you know these are all the things that that gremlins had i think that maybe a little bit of the plant and payoff like i discussed and a little bit of the humor uh, injected as well really would have made this i mean that would have leveled this thing up a whole grade rating for me personally Cause it, it was sure. right there, right there. But again, yeah, you know, first first time director, first time writer, a lot of first time talent here uh, on the cast and stuff, especially lower so, budget. Lower budget. Yep, yep. So I mean, but Dead Alive was a lower budget. But I just think that you know, getting seeing your work on screen or and seeing what works and what doesn't. I mean, you and I were just having this discussion earlier today about our sketches and how you know, for better or worse, you know, they, <laughs> we've, you know, put more into them, you know, looking back on our early work, we were learning a lot from them. And, uh, yeah. so, you know, and now, you know, we're able to, uh, they don't, maybe not all land, but they're at least, you know, more filled out. We know, uh, we have a little more, uh, foundation to, to bring to the table. Sure. And I think yeah. that's, uh, because Steven Herrick went right from this again to go make Bill and Ted's and that does yeah. have a lot of the humor and those jokes do land. And so, yes. um, yeah, I think well, and I that, think that's uh, more
0: reflective of the script than anything else. And that's kind of one of the things that I actually fair. wanted to mention is that I actually don't feel like this movie is very zany. I, th- I feel like that's kind of what differentiates it from Gremlins. I feel like this movie has a lot more of that poltergeist, kind of Steven Spielberg family. We're not going to get too dark with the horror. Like I said, I, th- I think the, the fairest comparison is is poltergeist from the okay. tone to the lack of graphic violence to the family banding together element. And I think that kind of exists very much in contrast to like Gremlins, which is really the Joe Dante show. Like that's the thing to remember. Like Joe Dante is a specific kind of crazy. Peter Jackson is a specific (laughs) kind of crazy, right? Touche. And and also we're comparing this film. Both of those films are inarguably in my top 25 of all time. Arguably, in my top ten of all time. So we are comparing this film, Critters, to what I would consider some of the best films of all time. Sure. So I'm and, and and I'm not saying it exists in that stratosphere at all. It's definitely a next tier down. But again, that doesn't make it a bad film just because it's not one of the best ever. It's good at what it does. It's solid. It, but to your point, yes, there are things that were left on the table, like we just talked about, and yeah, it, there was I'm probably disagree, two or three you, laugh out you, loud moments. I'll say you got yeah because you got the, like more. the
1: critters on the front porch and the one because yeah. uh-huh. here's the thing where they did that was zany, and I'll, I'm I'm going to argue your point with this and state that okay. uh, when they gave the critters subtitles, I thought that sure. was a yes, fantastic that was where they decision, kind of lent, and into yet that. there they should have been more. Because now you have a way to, for the critters to talk directly to your audience without anybody else knowing. Like, that's sure. a, uh, a wink and a nod to the, to the viewer, right? And um, uh, I love that. I, it's almost like uh, breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. yeah. So you've got the two critters on the front porch, and the one critter says they've got guns. The other critter says, so what? That critter gets shot immediately by a double barrel shotgun, gets blown to smithereens. And the first critter says, oh, fuck.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's hilarious in the moment.
1: The it joke is lands. very funny.
0: And yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about that one. We'll we'll jump up real quick, then we'll jump back and we'll keep it going. But because this is just a little ahead of where we are. But so the interesting thing about that is that the producer, Bob Shea, who ended up having final say, was very adamant that the aliens should not talk. In English whatsoever. They had actually considered having the the critters outright talk English at certain times. And they ended up deciding not to do that. Bob Shea brought in a vocal artist to do the little like bah, 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 type of stuff that they do, you know. And so it was time for the first screening of the film, Okay. And the director and the writer were like, man, those fucking subtitles like they need to be in there like Bob's killing us on this moment. He doesn't know what he's leaving on the table, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they talked to one of the editors who was working on the film and convinced him to basically take money out of the editing petty cash account that they had. And then they ran the reel over to like some janky special effects house. And were just like, okay, we have enough money for this one exchange. Okay. So in this scene on the porch, here's all the money. We want you to do these subtitles. They have weapons. So what? Fuck. Right. And that was the only <laughs> scene in the first print that had subtitles. And they had basically went rogue around Bob Shay's back and had that put in. And then when it played in the screening, That moment slayed like they said you could not hear dialogue for two minutes after that little exchange. Everybody was just rolling on the floor laughing after which, of course, after the movie, Bob runs out to Steven and Dominic. First thing, we've got to get more subtitles. What can we do to have (laughs) them talk more? Because, of course, because that's how it goes every single time with creatives and non-creatives. Fantastic. I mean, it worked for me. Did it work for you? Absolutely. It was, it's the funniest moment in the entire film. And to your point, I would have liked to have seen a lot more of that. And speaking of ways in which the film differed from the way it was originally envisioned or shot. So right before that, we've got this scene of April and Steve and they're macking in the barn. Right. And this is where we get our first on screen death. And it's of Steve played by Billy Zane, because, of course, you know, sisters boyfriend is going to be the first one to die that just makes sense the original death was super gory even after they had realized it was pg-13 and that was kind of one of the funny things so i want to say it was steven Chiotto, kind of the ringleader of the three of them this scene they asked them to make a giant chest cavity for billy zane as the and had the creature literally like eating his chest open with like all of this gore and viscera exposed and they've got a bunch of like squibs and tubes that are pumping out blood and like Ch- Chioto's just rolling his eyes and at one point he goes and they, they were apparently filming this scene for like three hours and he just goes, guys do you know that we got PG13? He's like, you're not going to be able to use a second of any of this. Why are we still filming? (laughs) And like walks away. And sure enough, the only part that you saw in the final cut of that entire like several hours of shooting and all the crazy shit they did is that brief little close up of a bloody faced Billy Zane for like half a second.
1: Yeah, it was a little lackluster.
0: I would have liked to have seen more of that. But the DVD has behind the scenes footage. And let me tell you, they crushed it. And it would have been awesome if that made it to the film. Nice! So this, this footage does still exist out there. Yeah, absolutely. If you get the Blu ray, uh, Scream Factory did an awesome Blu ray that uh, I watched for this and it has a bunch of cool special features. And I'm one of brag. them is all the behind the scenes stuff. You guys got Blu ray money. The I critters. Know. <laughs> 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 I invest in the show, Ryan, okay? That's how much I believe in this program. I invest in it. Oh, not, host... I could spend $4 on the a The host screen, of the show kicked on that sweet I wouldn't sweet have Blu-ray all these money. awesome stories to share with you. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, uh, and then we also get. Um, Right after that is where the son sort of chucks a firecracker at the one guy who like eats it and then it smokes up and then he explodes. By guy, of course, I'm referring to Critter because, yes, we gender them. So (laughs) uh, but, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it's just like a lot of this stuff is just cool. Like that's kind of what I want to see in a movie called Critters is a critter eating a firework and having it smoke up and then it explodes and he explodes with it. Like that's awesome. That's what we're here for. Yep. Like the
1: baby in the blender <laughs> and dead alive, like any number of scenes from gremlins, everything we're talking about. Yes. I even would go yeah. out and say that killer clowns from out of space had more scenes like that. There are low budget films that you don't need a big budget to lean into what you are. You know, there are a lot of films on this scale that know what they are, have a low budget um, and just. Lean into the schlock and the humor and all of that. I mean, even Child's Play uh, did a lot of that. You know, uh, going back to that. So, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I will say uh, the April character got over Steve very quickly because moving past this scene, <laughs> uh, you never hear his name mentioned. She never really weeps over. Him. <laughs> like it's just like, ah, oh, yeah, fuck it. That guy's
0: gone. Well, Whatever. Hey, I mean, she can't. She can't get the D anymore. So what good is? Yep, he? N- nothing to nobody. I guess this is when the film stopped being zany, huh? <laughs> well, I don't know because from there we've got the scene where the bounty hunters go to church, zany, and then the guy it? who was the dead no. cop now decides, huh? Because Billy, Billy Zane. I didn't hear. I missed the joke. Because it. <laughs> it's, oh, it's uh, Billy,
1: Zaney, Billy Zane. Billy Zane.
0: And... Uh, I, it. I like jokes. I, I stay up on jokes very, yes! very strongly. I always get them right away. I do
1: this for the and... listeners.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Oh. oh Jesus, Ryan! Ryan will never stop pretending that he is in his own personal episode of the Muppet Show, <laughs> just in his head, constantly like walk, 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 huh, guys. That's Mwah! right. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm talking
1: to you right now on my banana telephone, uh, across, the- <laughs> holding it up to my ear. Carry on. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, so, you know, he copies the pastors. So now he's reflecting the pastor's face side of the dead cop. Back home, we've got the family. They're trapped inside the house. Power gets cut, not just to the house, but to the truck as well. They were trying to get out of there. And lo and behold, the truck's power is all cut. They can't leave, which leads to dad having a shotgun fight with the critters. That's when he gets bitten inside the house. So, again, for people keeping score, we've got dad getting bit twice. Everyone else has managed to... I believe, avoid getting bitten yet. And from there, we've got another scene that was funny, probably only for me and possibly other diehard fans of The Simpsons. I don't know if you had a same thought about this, but the scene where the bounty hunters go to the bowling alley and then just shoot it up up with all of their weapons reminds me of Homer's brilliant idea of how he's going to bring more money to the bowling alley so that he can remain a pin monkey, (laughs) which is to run outside (laughs) and blast a shotgun in the air. Bowling, <laughs> bowling, get your
1: bowling, everyone. <laughs> 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 I totally forgot about that. No, so <laughs> that did not land with me, but now so that it- you bring it up, flawless. <laughs>
0: (laughs) That was like all I thought, but I mean like 85% of anything that happens in a movie reminds me of the Simpsons. So, but I know there's one other person out there listening who probably thought the same thing. If so, please chime in one of our accounts. Let me know. I will say that,
1: uh, the bowling team or bowling league, their uniforms, uh, even though they were a total homage
0: to ghostbusters,
1: every time I see bowling uniforms ever, I always think of the Simpsons, uh, that, that does harken back to that. They're, the Pin Pals, absolutely. Yes.
0: And it was a very similar design. It just had the ghost on the head of the pin. Correct. Instead of the uh, heads of the bowlers. Yep. I, that, I immediately, my <laughs> mind goes to Simpsons Bowling League every time,
1: the the Pin Pals. So yeah, that was fantastic.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, the guns themselves as well were an original creation. So part of it is because of the way that they were designed and the way that they wanted to have them designed, they couldn't be reloaded easily. And they couldn't be reloaded in between takes. So the most they could get with a traditional shotgun would be two blasts. They wanted to get – the directors and everyone else, the filmmakers, wanted to be able to get four blasts per take so that they could increase their efficiency basically. So they had this guy come in and basically build these entirely new sort of modified shotguns that could get four blasts. They also needed to be able to like swivel and articulate on the belt for the actors so that it didn't – it didn't uh, carry awkwardly. Yeah. It and makes so they sense. Ended up, didn't impede, yeah. impede their movement and uh, them projecting and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they ended up having those custom made and it was pretty cool to see the uh, prop master, how he ended up putting those together. And there's a funny story about uh, firing the weapon that we'll get to here in just a minute. I'll refer back to this moment. But in terms of the film, we've got the family still trapped in the house. The critters end up breaking through the window And that's where we also get them shooting the spike in mom's neck. So she's starting to feel a little woozy. We've got the son who grabs the shotgun and he's going to be the hero. He ends up firing and missing horribly, hits the fan. Fan ends up dropping down almost on him and he runs upstairs. That's when he sees another critter. This time has the idea, hey, let's not shoot it. Let's burn this one to the ground with this uh, lamp here. So throws the lamp on the ground. Critter ends up. Go in a blaze, they're able to tamp it out before you know too much damage is done. And then as they're powwowing in the bedroom, dad's in bad shape and they've got to get out of here. So the son, Brad, ends up convincing the well, the family, but ultimately dad, to let him try to go save the day. He's gonna run out, grab his bike, speed away, and except that when he gets out there, there is a critter guarding the bike. And this would be one of, like, the medium-sized critters. They basically designed three different critters over the course of the movie. There's a small, medium, and large critter. And this is also where we get, like, a very sort of cool practical effect where we see the shadow of the critter actually growing from the small critter to the large critter. So now we know without seeing it that there's this sort of, like, large critter that's out there. And obviously that's going to be the big crescendo as it's going to lead up to that at the climax. In the meantime, the small ones in a sort of a very funny little note, they ended up uh, They're in the bedroom. This is where they're like basically tearing up the whole bedroom. They've got all the pillows flying everywhere with the down feathers. And then they have the one that's basically like talking to the E.T. doll. And it's like, hey, hey, you, where are you from? Hey, we're aliens. Where are you from? And then it ends up attacking him. Nice little, you know. Wink a their nod. Reference yeah. to the times, of course. Well, especially since D. Wallace was in E.T. as the mom, so... Yeah, exactly. And this is actually the moment I was referring to a moment ago with the guns. So, basically, when they... After that all happens, the kid actually manages to get his bike. He runs out, and he finds the bounty hunters. He thinks they're cops, which is why he stops them. And he jumps in, very quickly finds out that they're not cops. They're these bounty hunters. And convinces them to take him home and we're introduced to them by way of this like giant explosion where they just apparently blast their way into the house. And what I would have to imagine was kind of unnecessary because everybody else was upstairs as were all the critters. So they like blow up the front porch or whatever. And then they end up walking upstairs. There's a couple critters up there. And if you, if you remember there's the the one that ends up like rolling over to the toilet and like hiding into the, trying to hide in the toilet. Yes. And then there's the scene where the rocker guy bounty hunter comes up and like blasts the shotgun at the toilet and, John, and Johnny Steele. We shall call him by name, Johnny yes. Steele. <laughs> of course, Johnny Steele, power of the, the night. power of the night, baby, and So Johnny. <laughs> so the funny thing is, the actor himself—I uh, forget his name—but the the actual actor that played Johnny Steele, Terrence Mann, really wanted to do Terrence Mann. Thank you. Really wanted to do the effects. Or to actually, like, shoot the gun on this on this uh, shot, even though there was no close-up, right? He just, like, really, really wanted to fire the gun. And it was one of these things where it wasn't like a live bullet. You know, it was set up to where you get the shotgun explosion from the gun with no live bullet. And then they had an explosive attached to the toilet that they rigged to go off at the same time that explodes to simulate it, right? And – they were just like, no, Terrence, it's too dangerous. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, fuck that. It's fine. Just let me do it. Let me do it. They're like, no, no, go away. They like wouldn't relent. So you're like, you know, shoulders hunched, like, oh, fine. Kicks rocks away. So then it comes time the stuntman comes in. They do that shot. And the shrapnel was so severe that it completely tore up the stuntman's face. Oh wow! And had they done that, had he had they let him do that shot, he wouldn't have been able to shoot the rest of his scenes. So kind or of any scenes they, like, stuck ever anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> he ain't pretty no more. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so um, kind of a funny little story there. From there, we've got, like I said, this giant critter. So most of the critters at this point have been destroyed. If we recall, I don't even really know that we mentioned at the top, but basically the bounty hunters have been assigned by that worm warden guy at the beginning to go and kill all eight critters, right? And then basically bring back evidence that they did indeed kill all eight of them. So at this point, we're down to three critters. We've got two of the small ones, but we've got this one large one. And the large one grabs the daughter and goes away. The son sort of rides off on his bike to chase. He finds Charlie and the two of them soon find the actual spaceship that the Krites had crashed down. Now, the son sneaks in and rescues the sister and drops a firecracker in there. After which point, our man Charlie ends up using a liquor bottle... Uh, Again, he's the town drunk, right? He uses one of his liquor bottles to make this, like, makeshift Molotov cocktail. And he chucks that in the spaceship. (laughs) That was cool. Uh, Which that lights on fire, but not enough to actually destroy the ship yet because it's going to take that first firecracker that Brad left really exploding and all of that is going to end up destroying the ship. So as the ship is flying away, it's able to take one last look at the house and it fires this laser at the house. And destroys it in a very big, giant fashion. And the funny thing about this, Ryan, is that they actually used a form of napalm to make that explosion because they wanted to get that sort of green color that comes from it. And apparently it was such a huge explosion that not only did the actors who were like on a hill, hundreds of feet away, get a bunch of shrapnel in their face. But there was a bunch of reports that, like, cars were, like, pulling over on the freeway and stopping to see, like, they were assuming there was some sort of nuclear attack or something (laughs) like that going on. So did they blow up an actual house? I assume they did this as a miniature, like they did in Poltergeist. So I didn't actually mention this earlier, but so the interesting thing about this is this is actually basically kind of like a model home. Okay. This was in an area. It was shot in an area of Valencia, and it hadn't been developed yet. And they were in the middle of doing all the development, and they basically had, like, a model home, which was perfect because that's basically what they need, right? So because it was, like, half of a home in reality, it was very easy for them to get in and, like, cut stuff away to, you know, have one of the producers grab a critter on his hand and stick it through the staircase, right? Because it was just all hollow. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So it was almost kind of set up like a set to begin with, just with some modifications. Sure, And so – they ended up blowing that. Up. Well, okay. So they ended up blowing that up for this scene. Got it. So yeah. So it was like a house, but like not a full house, but like more that's than a set. Somewhere in
1: between all that. Very impressive. Like I said, I could have swore that that would have been done with with miniatures instead of just blow. Because you're gonna. I mean, that's just yeah. That's a whole new level of liability.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, that is definitely like. Mid-80s, we don't know better. Regulations haven't been quite put in place to prevent Fuck this sort it. of thing. Yeah, like, You could never get away with that. Blow today. that no chance, shit dude. up. I support no it. I will say that um,
1: <laughs> at this point in the film, as we're winding it down here, I it did kind of occur to me that aside from some added color into the script, uh, the Charlie character really does kind of only exist for this moment, right? Like <laughs> it is the yeah. whole plant payoff of him throwing his liquor bottle up there along with the fire, firecracker or whatever, you know, but outside of that, like he has no real impact on anything other than just showing up as some Pseudo comic relief. Well, he's also, really funny. I mean,
0: he's also supposed to be that kind of like, uh, you know, the, the harbinger, the crazy guy that doesn't end up being crazy because there it's is a, a little bit of film. that. My feelings. Yeah. He always talks about his feelings yeah, and exactly. they're coming and all that. He's of talking them. about he's right. getting transmissions and all that. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, but he's definitely that character, but yeah, it totally sets that up. And then as the krites are flying away, that's when the firecracker goes off. That in turn blows up the actual spaceship which kills the three remaining critters. And so with their job done, the bounty hunters are able to leave. But before they do, they end up giving a transmitter. uh, Johnny Steele does, that is, gives a transmitter from his belt and leaves it with uh, the kid Brad. And this is actually going to set up a nice scene the next morning. But before we go into the next scene, Ryan, I did want to let you know, were you familiar that this film had an alternate ending originally? I did not know that. Yes, yeah, so again, one of the special features on my Mister oh, Monopoly God. Man Blu-ray yeah, is yeah. the original ending. Right, your gold-plated Blu-ray, <laughs> and it actually ends right there. So the original ending was kind of a downbeat ending where the family stays together, but they lose their house. It blows up, and they all just drive away in Harv, the policeman's vehicle, and the, and the film ends. Well, but not without like our little reveal of the three little eggs as well. There is the three little eggs as well, but they're all there on the destroyed property. Got it. Now, this was actually the ending that screened when they first had that first screening where I was talking about earlier with the superimpositions that they roguely went out and got, had done. And people were like, you know what? Good ending. Could use a little work. I feel like you know the upbeat nature of the film, et cetera, it really should go out on a positive note. And he still had the... They still had the Johnny Steele bounty hunter give the kid that transmitter. Just he didn't do anything with it. Sure, it was just kind of a token of appreciation or something. Yeah, Call us and if so someone had this, the kid. idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so someone gave Bob the idea, like, well, what if that little transmitter actually like triggers something to rebuild the house? And they were like, perfect, done. So this, to your this point, is Ryan, is they're going back. Now this is where they use miniatures. So at this point, so funny thing, right? You would think that they would just do all of that footage in reverse, right? But they didn't have the, that wasn't in the plans because that wasn't the original ending. So they never, so the, so they couldn't do that. So, cause it wasn't filmed that way. So what they did is they ended up having a miniature built and then had the, had it take place the next day and then had the family come back. So what they did is they blew up a miniature, but. They knew that they were going to need the house to rebuild itself. They already had the explosion, right? Got it, got it. So they got the camera angles they they needed to do that,
1: and then they were able to play it in reverse.
0: Correct, except that there was, because it was a miniature, the whole thing was made of wood, and they knew that they weren't getting the explosion, they were getting it rebuilding itself. Okay. And so they wanted it to look more like it was rebuilding itself from a collapse than like a splintered explosion. Sure, that makes sense. So they built... Yeah, so they built the entire miniature house out of wood, and then added a bunch of uh, latex in, and used latex to do a lot of the windows and the walls, and over that, so that when they exploded it, it wouldn't it wouldn't blow up into parts it would just kind of blow in, into small parts like little shrapnel and splinters. It would sort of blow up into larger parts. Got it, okay. And that way when you reversed it, it would sort of look like it was assembling itself like a puzzle, almost. from pieces on the yeah. ground more so than like an explosion in reverse. From shrapnel, yeah.
1: No, that makes total sense. That's a brilliant yeah. way to do that. Yeah, I, right? Yeah, because when you told me they blew up an actual house, that was the first thing I thought. I didn't want to like, I knew we still had a little bit to go on the narrative, so I didn't want to jump there. But uh, my, my first thought was, then how did it come back together? Um
0: And now yeah. you just put that together for me. So I appreciate it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And the only thing that they had to do in terms of like making it normal size is there's that one shot of the family, the four of them. It's like an OTS where you see the roof kind of piecing itself back together. And there's a white picket fence in the foreground. So they basically just built a, a, a real scale size white picket fence for the actors to stand next to. And then, you know, positioned the miniature house accordingly in the background so that it looked all huge and blown up. Cool. So, yeah. And then that pretty much brought us to the end of the film where the spaceship flies away and the cop drives off and the family returns back to their house. But not before we get a slight little tracking shot. that takes us all the way into a barn in the backyard. We receive our three critter eggs sitting in a basket in some sort of nest just waiting to rehatch for a sequel. And that's where we get our fade to black. With our awesome 80s synth score that kicks in. Fantastic. Loved it. And that's Critters. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So definitely a fun film. And, you know, it's not going to be definitely, (laughs) as we mentioned earlier, very different flavor than Phantom Thread or some of the other films, Sweet Smell, that we've looked here Amadeus, these films. But, uh, you know, this is why we have this program, because we like to look at the high and low in equal measure. And even the low in this case is still pretty damn good, I got to say. I mean, we created the list, so we have only uh, ourselves to blame. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Now, Ryan, as we do when we wrap things up, we are going to get ahead and I'm going to ask you for your three adjectives that describe your experience with the film Critters. These are pretty easy.
1: Uh, Stuff I've already kind of covered earlier on. Uh, My first is value meal because I just kind of wanted more. I felt like everything... This was this is junk food, right? This is the the trip to the late night trip to Taco Bell, where you just you're getting that good stuff that you know. I mean, it's not quality. It's not it's not Phantom Thread or <laughs> you know Amadeus, like you said. But uh, but I just wanted a little more. I felt like it was the value meal version of the fast food. Like I just got two tacos and a drink. I wanted a little more critters. I wanted a little more foreshadowing. I wanted a little more comedy. Uh, but everything that was there was fucking perfect and i loved every minute of it um so much so so i loved it so much that i wanted more of it Uh, so i mean that in a good way The, the second is nostalgia uh for all the reasons we talked about from the opening new line uh logo to all the schlocky stuff to young billy zane and the 80s power ballads and the top tall hair and all of it uh this was nostalgia overload to 1986 um and I loved every minute of it Uh, creature feature, because that's what this is. This is kind of a little bit of sci fi, a little bit of horror, uh, but we're here for the creatures. We're here for the violence. We're here for the comedy and the silliness and the over the top uh, behaviors. And so as much as I did love the family stuff in the beginning and all of that dynamic uh, that led into the creatures, this was a creature feature to me. Jason, how about you, buddy?
0: Absolutely. So my first one I've got is very simply fun. It's just a fun movie, right? Is is it the most fun I've ever had at the movies? No. Can you get very much more amped up versions of this out there? Yes. But that's not to take away from the fact that this is just a solid film. It's enjoyable it's not something, you know, It's it's PG-13 first of all, so it's something where if you're a parent, you know, you can actually watch it with your kid, which I mean, how many horror films can you actually watch with your kid? The most offensive thing is an F bomb and a little bit of blood here and there. So let's also not over the la- overlook the fact that like it's a family horror film, which you know, again, single digits probably of films that would qualify for that. And even if you're not, you know, it's just it's not something where Again, you need to get super dark with it. You can just have a good time, crack open a beer, do whatever you want, enjoy it. The other I have, another hy- I've got a hyphenated one for you here, surprisingly competent. And that's kind of the, the biggest right. takeaway that I had from this film is like all of the ingredients were actually really well done. Really well Again, done, normally- Yeah. A horror, a low-budget horror film is not shot well. It looks like garbage. This, this was not the case. This film actually looked very solid. Agreed. The creature effects them, them themselves were not lackluster. Could they have been a little beefed up? Sure. But I've certainly seen a lot worse. And they were still willing to show you everything, which I've always got to give it credit for that. Yep. Awesome score, well acted, well paced, well everything. You know. So again, for a low-budget B-grade horror movie, surprisingly competent. And lastly, and from a 80s, 80s AF, man. Let's not uh, shine that on. I mean, the, right, these guys, absolutely. guys are brand new to the game. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. First time writer, too. Yeah, right. No, no, absolutely. First time writer. No, absolutely. So, But yeah, and then third, like I said, 80s AF, just every, all across the board, dude. This was 1986 from the hair of Johnny Steele to the synth-driven score uh, of the main theme to the very sort of family-oriented score from David Newman, to the acting styles, to the decisions, just everything about this screams the 1980s. Yes. Which, to your point, you know, nostalgia, I feel like that's just two ways, two different ways of saying yes. the same thing. This is peak 80s. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. So, fun, surprisingly competent, 80s AF. I'm going to go ahead and give you my star rating first, and I am giving this one a solid four out of five stars. Oh, nice. Solid movie. Yeah. Yeah. Could have gone a little bit less maybe just for some technical things. But I was like, no, you know what? I enjoy it. Solid film. I I would watch it again. It's not something I'm going to make a yearly viewing. Right? But definitely going to be watching the film again at some point down the road. And I would gladly throw it on for someone that hasn't seen it. So solid four out of five stars from old Jason. What you got on grade rating? I'm giving it a C plus for all the same reasons.
1: It might be... a little yeah. bit lower than yours, and maybe I did the discount that you're talking about that you could have, because uh, I could have easily gone to B minus. I was right on the fence. Like, is it a B-film yeah. or a C-plus film? And uh, I just kind of had to lean more towards the C-plus uh, for all the reasons I mentioned. Totally but it. this is a great film. Like, I mean, it's not the best film. It's not the best version of this. It's definitely above average, and uh, and I had a great time. Yeah. So,
0: 100%. Yeah, c plus. And speaking of ratings... We really need your guys' help with the ratings out there. We do not have that many on the old iTunes. I know Spotify has a rating system. So once again, going to ask you guys to please help us out. If you could rate us. We're not even going to ask you to rate us five stars. If you think we're a five-star show, rate it. But if you think we're a three- or four-star or one-star, rate it accordingly, okay? We just want to get those up, uh, those numbers up a little bit. If you notice they're lacking, hopefully you're already subscribed, leaving reviews, all of that good stuff. And then the other thing I want to mention is we still have the Esoterica Cinema Hotline. Right, So you can still call in and let us know what you think about Critters, what you thought about our review of Phantom Thread a couple weeks back, what you think about the films that we have on our master list. Maybe you'd like to recommend some films that you think should be on our list. All of this you can call in. We'll get your clip live on the air here for everyone to listen to. That number, Esotica Cinema Hotline, 818-483-6285. Please call us. Leave us a message. We would love to hear from you. And, of course, if you don't prefer calling in, you know, maybe you're shy about your voice or something like that, which, by the way, I have a show. So if you're, you know, at all hesitant about your voice being on the air, if I can do it, anybody can. So please just call us. Don't worry about it. And the other thing is that you can hit us up on the social medias, right? Esoterica Cinema at Twitter, at Twitter. Instagram and also at gmail.com where you know that we love to hear about all of your muffin related comments in addition to whatever else you got going on. So plenty of ways to go ahead and check us out. The other thing is if you haven't seen the website, the website is looking beautiful these days. We've got a player with the last four episodes on there. You can listen to all the episodes right there. And of course, one of my favorite things is that it has access to our master list of films where it has all 200 films that could potentially get drawn for the following episode. And right now, we're actually going to go ahead, take a look at that, and get into it as we look at our next film for Esoterica Cinema. All right, Ryan, let's see what we got here, man. So, of course, the first thing I'm going to do is pull up my list, and the second thing I'm going to do is pull up my random.org, true random number generator. Got 1 through 200. As we generate the list, we go to... One hundred and eighty seven. So again, if you're on the site right now or you've got that list printed out, you're going to go to to one that's the number one hundred and eighty seven. And it looks like, wow, we have got quite the prestige picture here. Now, this could have gone a couple different ways. Okay, first of all, it's the first time that we've been on the third page. Uh, Basically, the way this document works, it it breaks down into three pages. So I don't know, 75 films roughly per page. This is the first film from the back 75. It starts at one forty four. Now, above it, we have a film called Time Crimes, which is a French uh, horror thriller that has to do with time travel of some sort. And then we've also got, after it, 188, which is Tree of Life, uh, Terrence Malick, Tree of Life, which uh, three-hour art film. I, I think that would lend itself to a pretty good discussion here. However, for our next episode, we are doing a film that is one of the most highly regarded films In cinematic history, I've never seen it. It's actually Paul Schrader's favorite film of all time. I just happened to be looking at one of his top five lists recently. And it's just so highly regarded. It's the film called Tokyo Story. And I can tell you right now for a fact, Tokyo Story is available on the Criterion channel and my beloved Canopy. And I know there's other places that you can get it. Ryan, please give us a description for Tokyo Story. From 1953, and director Yasajiro Ozu...
1: Google has this described as the elderly Shukishi and his wife Tomi take the long journey from their small seaside village to visit their adult children in Tokyo. Their elder son, Koichi, a doctor and their... Oh, Jesus Christ. A doctor and their daughter, Shigi, a hairdresser... I'm butchering all these names, by the way. I'm so sorry. Don't <laughs> do you, don't have much time to spend with you their age just... parents, so it falls to Noriko. Got that one. The widow of their younger son who was killed in the war to keep her in-laws company. Holy fuck, dude. Um, Yeah. I almost needed subtitles for the description. My bad on that, everybody. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and edit the best I can. This is sitting at 100% Rotten Tomato meter, so uh, don't let my description... Yeah. Uh, botching, sway you on watching this film. This is something that I've wanted to see for a while. I've heard about it. I don't, uh, I have never seen this film. So, have you, Jason? Me neither.
0: Yeah. No, I have absolutely not. And honestly, I I didn't even really know what it was about. You know, I think I've mentioned before by now that I love to try to go into films blind. But again, this is one of those films that's on everybody's, like, must-see films before you die. It's consistently spoken of in the same breath as films like Citizen Kane and The Third Man and wow. all of these just wonderful classic historical films where it's just supposed to be among – now. now here's the thing. That might kind of work against it because now we've got all these built-up expectations. However, the same thing could have been said about Amadeus and that's still – that was just as wonderful and high expectations I don't think took that away from you, right? Yeah,
1: so – I'm reading this description and it's like, so an elderly couple go to visit their kids uh, to keep them company. <laughs> right. <laughs> awesome. So cool. What, cool, bro. Yeah. What I'm hoping this isn't is Wild Strawberries, which was a highly regarded film as well. And I watched it and I was like, wah, wah. Total snoozer. Yeah.
0: Neither of us like that one, dude.
1: Yeah. So let's hope this is But it could be like, uh, but
0: I mean, here's the thing. It could also just as easily be like live action Grave of the Fireflies from that description. It could so totally be that too. We'll have to see.
1: Yeah. It's two hours and sixteen minutes. So it's right on the cusp of All I right. think that's the sweet spot for me. Like right around two hours is where I want a film to be. So it's just over that. Uh I mean, unless you're you're uh critters and you want to do an hour and twenty, then fuck yeah, let's <laughs> do it. <laughs>
0: But uh, yeah, Tokyo Story. Unless there are your precious Marvel movies that want to take two hours and 75 minutes each time, which, yes, I know is three hours and 15 minutes. That's a joke. Please don't at me. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. So anyways, that was Critters. Hopefully you watched and you enjoyed. If not, hopefully you enjoyed listening to us talk about it. If you want to get ahead of next episode's film, do go ahead and check out Tokyo Story. That'll be available at a number of places. And we will see you on the next episode of Esoterica Cinema. Thanks for hanging out.